This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Before we get started on this very good question, do you have to be perfect to enter heaven, I'd like to remind you that you can send me an email at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. If you have any feedback you'd like to give me or questions or topics that you'd like me to address, it's always good to hear from listeners, and I do want to help you in any way that I can. Today, we have something a little bit different going on. I'm going to be joined by a friend, Glenn Cole, and we are going to discuss this question, do you have to be perfect to enter heaven? This is the first time that I've had a guest on the podcast, and so it's a little bit of a test run to see how this works out. I'm really looking forward to talking with Glenn about this. Just to let you know a little bit before I bring Glenn on, Glenn and I have been friends for many, many, many years. He's led mission teams overseas, and he and I, on pretty much every Tuesday of the year, we talk. When I'm in the USA, in his hometown, then we'll meet for coffee in the mornings, on Tuesday mornings, and when I'm overseas, we'll have a Skype call, and we've been doing that for quite a few years now. And if you don't have somebody in your life that you're doing something like that with, I encourage you to find somebody and just make a commitment to meet as often as you can every week and sit down and go as deep as the Spirit leads you and encourage one another. So I'm going to bring Glenn in. Glenn, thank you for joining me and agreeing to participate in the podcast today. Yeah. Hi, Mike. It is really good, and I'm honored uh, to be your very first guest, and it may be the last time that you have me on, but at least we have this (laughs) go-round. Yeah, I don't really know how to reply to that. (laughs) It may very well be the last time I do this with anybody. We'll see how it goes. So far, so good, I'd say. Glenn, would you introduce yourself to folks? Tell, Tell folks a little bit about your history and what you're doing, what you've been doing, things like that. Yeah, uh, you've already mentioned that I am in the U.S. I'm in Athens, Georgia, and I've lived in Athens uh, for over the last 30 years, although I grew up in the state of Kentucky, mostly in the Lexington area. But I've been in Georgia and specifically in Athens now for going on 35 years. Uh, I am currently a pastor of a small church called Pennington United Methodist Church, and I have been the pastor there all of two and a half weeks. (laughs) Before that, I served at another Methodist church here in Athens, St. James United Methodist Church. I was the executive minister there for 19 years. So that's a bit about me and my history, but personally, I'm married to Kelly. We have two daughters, and our oldest lives in Canada. She's married, and uh, my son-in-law is in graduate school there at the University of Toronto. And uh, just about five weeks ago, they gave us our very first grandson. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, We also have another daughter, Sarah, who just graduated from Asbury University, which is up in Kentucky. And she's here in Athens. She's uh, working, and she's being involved in theater and some teaching and some other things. I am also uh, finishing up seminary. I've been in seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is also in Kentucky, And I'm finishing my Master of Divinity degree, and it has been a very long road, but uh, come December, 
Lord willing, and unless I've missed something, I should finish that degree in December. And um, you've been a teacher uh, at various places. You've traveled over here a few times, and also uh, I'd like folks to know that you're the chairman of the board of Stoneworks International, which is the mission organization of which I'm the executive director. So Glenn and I are good friends, and we have a long history together, and we're also working together in ministry at Stoneworks. So I'd like to start us off on this question, do you have to be perfect to enter heaven? I'd like you to tell the story that you mentioned to me when we discussed this a little while ago. You said you were talking with someone, and I'd just like to get us rolling with that story. Yeah, I was uh, at church on a Sunday morning, and uh, someone had just started a conversation with me, and uh, this person was relating a particularly hard event in their life, and it involved some rebellion uh, and also some sin, but we weren't getting that deep into the conversation. But uh, their response was, you know, God loves me anyway. And I had to stop the conversation at that point and say, well, yes, but no. It's not that God loves us anyway. It's that he loves us on account of Christ, that he doesn't just accept us as we are. He accepts us because of Christ and Christ's perfection uh, given to us because we know we're not perfect mm-hmm. uh, if we are really honest with ourselves. And so that, I think when you and I began to talk about this, that phrase, God loves me anyway, uh, was something that we had to really wrestle with. And uh, is it true that God loves us anyway? Right. Or is there a way in which God loves us? That question, does God love us anyway? Sometimes I think that there is a conflation of the word love and the word acceptance. Right. To say God loves me to a lot of people means that God accepts me. We've had this come up recently uh, with a family member who we say that we love you and we understand you, and they think that means that we also accept what they're doing. Right, yeah. There's this idea, especially I think in the Western church, there's so much teaching about how much God loves people that it sort of sounds like God loves you and he accepts you just the way you are. And it's true that he does love deeply. He is love. And yet uh, there are some other conditions that go with being accepted by the Lord. Yeah, that's right. And like you said, it's because of what Christ has done. And this brings up that question, is it required for people to be perfect in order to enter heaven? So I'd like you just to sort of lead us through some of your thoughts about that, and we'll go back and forth as we cover some of the ground. Sure, and I don't know that we can recreate totally our initial conversation. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's the point. Uh, And I wouldn't want anyone to walk away from uh, hearing this podcast thinking that Glenn uh, and Mike don't think that God loves us. It's clear Mm -hmm. in Scripture. In fact, that's what the whole of the Bible is about, Mm -hmm. is about God loving the world so much that he did something to make things right. Amen. But really, Mike, I think our typical thinking as humans, it's just because our natural language, whether we speak English or Spanish or Russian or whatever it is, that may be our native tongue, but we also share another language, and that language is the law. Uh, It is a matter of do this, don't do that. Uh, It's one reason why we look to the Ten Commandments as a guide for our lives. We want to know what it is that we have to do Mm -hmm. for some kind of moral improvement or just moral living. 
and that kind of language that we understand. It's like in the scriptures, uh, this is recorded in, in a couple of places in Mark 10 and in Luke 18 about the, the rich young ruler. And he approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? Mm-hmm. And just the way he phrases that reveals something about his thinking. Uh, he, his focus is on what must I do? And it's also on what must I do yeah. to inherit eternal life? And so we think it's up to us. And we also think that we actually have whatever is required within us to actually get there. I've mentioned a few times on the podcast the difference between Christianity and other world religions. And down at its root, one of the great differences is, according to the legal way of thinking, this, like you said, the language of the law, we have to do better in order to come close to God. We have to be better in order to be acceptable to him or to be in his presence. And what Christianity is, it says we come to God so that we'll be better. We don't have to work our way to him. He makes an avenue for us to have a relationship with him, and then through that we actually become better. What ends up happening, especially, and I can't speak about the church in other parts of the world, uh, but uh, certainly within the context of American Christianity, uh, we will hear lots of sermons Uh, We may be involved in Bible studies or read devotionals, and they're centered around this theme of doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We always want to have a prescription, it seems like. What do we need to do to have a better life? Uh, I heard one example recently from the Sermon on the Mount, and it essentially came down to, now here are 10 steps that you can take for physical purity. Mm-hmm. Or it could be here are eight ways that you can now have a better thought life just based on these principles that we hear from the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what people walk away with is they've got a list. Now I've got something I can do. I can try this and try to have a better life in that way. And two things that actually end up happening in those kind of cases is, number one, uh, people can think that they actually have some success about it, whether it is sexual purity, and uh, if it's a man or a woman, and they're no longer looking at anything on the internet, uh, they can have a certain level of success in that, uh, but the lust may still be there. Mm -hmm. But that can lead to a level of pride, uh, because if we do have some success in this moral improvement area, uh, we can tend to pat ourselves on the back. I'm doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But the other thing, and the other thing that's probably most frequent, is people realize that they don't measure up. They, they hear a sermon, here are 10 steps to physical purity, uh, and the person sitting there hearing the sermon thinks, I, I don't match up to that, I'll never match up to that, and if that's what I have to do, then I'll never get there. And it leads to despair. Yeah. And so we have these two things that can happen, pride uh, in our own ability or despair uh, because we know we'll never achieve it. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and the Christian life, it's its not a formula, and I think yeah. that's what a lot of people either come to Christianity thinking it is, or that's what they're taught it is, is that it's just a, a formula. You follow these principles, and Jesus will bless your life, uh, whatever that mm-hmm. may mean. Uh, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later in our discussion, but the, the difference really is not what we do, but what has been done for us. Mm -hmm. And that's the crux of the matter. It's not a matter of this list of things that we have to do, but it's it's the good news that then 
gives us, uh, I don't know, the wind in our sails, so to speak, to be able to do these things uh, mm-hmm. that are, are given to us in Scripture. It's the difference between, and I've heard you talk about this in some of your other podcasts, the difference between the indicatives and the and the imperatives. Mm-hmm. The indicative tells us what we are. We are in Christ. And then the imperative is, now present your bodies as a, a living sacrifice. Yeah, I've been thinking as I was coming up to this conversation also how Paul says to Timothy, persevere in your life and your doctrine, and in so doing you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And right now we're talking about a really, really fundamental doctrinal point. It's uh, something that people skip over because of this natural tendency to think in terms of the law, of just doing the right thing, and yet this doctrine is so very important that um, yeah. Christ has done it all. It's freeing. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's right. And and it's freeing for people uh, when they really grasp it, that it's not up to them to earn their way mm-hmm. to enter to heaven, and to, to, to get into Christ's pre- or to God's presence. It's not up to them. Right. Um, they simply need to trust uh, in what Christ has done. And so in that way, it's freeing. And it also brings to mind what Jesus said in reply to the man who asked, what is the work that God requires? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Yeah. The man is asking about what do I have to do? And Jesus is saying, you believe. You believe the truth. You believe in me. And that's what God requires. After that, lots of other things follow. Exactly. Well, it sort of brings up a question. I think we ought to talk about this in just a as a little sidebar, perhaps, what is heaven? Do you have to be perfect to enter heaven? And so what are your thoughts about what heaven is? Yeah, it's kind of a catchphrase, especially in English and especially in America. People have this tendency to think, I I know what heaven is. And we use that word, I think, simply to refer to being in God's eternal presence. It's the place where God is, mm-hmm. whatever heaven is. And people have different ideas about heaven, but I think we use that just as uh, almost like a placeholder. When we talk about getting into heaven, we mean getting into where where God is, mm-hmm. that place of eternal rest. Yeah, amen. I, I like the way you say it. It's kind of a placeholder phrase. Now, people often, and I know this to be true because I had this idea, because it's in popular culture, it's in a lot of Christian art, that when we're in heaven, we're angels. Oh, right. And sort of disembodied spirits, and sometimes playing harps or sitting on clouds or things like that. And the future for followers of Jesus, that's a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said so. And we're going to be in physical bodies. We'll have bodies like Jesus's resurrected body, and we'll actually be living in a place. We're not going to be disembodied spirits, and we're not going to be, like I said, little angels playing harps. Uh, When we die, we are disembodied spirits for a while, and then there's a resurrection. And then heaven becomes, like you said, being within the presence of the Lord. It's going to be a physical thing. That's right. It uh, ultimately is going to be a physical place. And Jesus said as much. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I believe that's exactly what he meant, that there is a new thing that is being created for his people. Of course, in the future, I think I've been promising this for the past few months, that I would talk about what happens when people die, when our spirits leave our bodies. There's a time between our physical death here on earth and our resurrection, physical resurrection. 
And at some point in the future episode, I'm going to talk about what happens scripturally, what little windows we have into this time between death and resurrection, but we won't get into that now. Yeah, you need to get to it. I've been waiting for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I keep teasing people along, but I'll get to it. Um, Also, the teaching on covenants. I keep talking about it and touching on it, but I'll dig into that sometime soon. Let's look at a few scriptures that talk about this, the necessity of being perfect, because we certainly don't want people thinking it's just Mike and Glenn's idea that we need to be perfect to enter heaven. Oh, yeah. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, I want everybody that's listening to double-check us on all of this. It's very easy if we think something is coming from a human being. It's very easy to refuse to believe it or to turn away from it or say, yeah, but they don't really know everything. But when we see what God himself says, what Jesus himself says, then we have to deal with the hard realities of um, what he says. Oh, and I do want to say something I was thinking about. People that know me and have listened to some of these podcasts might get the idea, which is true, that I have a little bit of a contrarian in me. I sort of have a contrarian nature. And I was thinking about that's one of the appeals of the teachings of Jesus to me, is that he doesn't play by the world's rules. And the things that he says goes very much against the way the world understands things. And I... Uh, did a few episodes on uh, contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world, and these contrasts are very stark. And so what we're getting into here is some things that Jesus said that we can't say he was just a good moral teacher. He actually claims eternal authority in the things that he says. That's right. And it really flies in the face of the way a lot of people think about things. So first off, we have Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43 and following. You have that there in front of you, I think, right? Would you mind reading that? Yeah, not at all. And this is in part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, This is recorded. And so this is just one section of this long sermon that Matthew records. And Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, isn't that something? So I remember when I was a young believer, which for me was in my late 20s, early 30s, somebody said that the Sermon on the Mount is not really to be taken totally seriously because Jesus lays out moral teaching that is impossible for us. And so the idea that I got from hearing this teacher was you don't really have to take it totally seriously or look at it real closely or, I don't know, believe that he really meant what he said because it doesn't really apply to us, Mm. which, yeah, which is a strange thing for a Christian teacher to say, whereas, obviously, the place that I come from is he said it, he meant it, and if we don't quite get it or if it rubs us the wrong way, then we've got to dig into it and begin to see things from his perspective. And right here he says to his followers, well, he says not only to his followers but to everybody, you must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. It reminds me, one of my favorite scriptures is right after the Sermon on the Mount. It said people were amazed because he taught as somebody who has authority and not like their own teachers of the law. So when I hear something like this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, I imagine Jesus saying that with authority in his voice. It's not a good suggestion. It's actually the creator of the universe speaking with authority. Yeah, that's right. And it comes at the end. There's a, a, a larger section in this, and we'll get to the scripture in a, in a minute. Uh, but uh, he starts off this particular section talking about righteousness and what level of righteousness the people must have. And then he finishes with this statement, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that is the standard by which Mm -hmm. Jesus uh, is saying that we will be measured. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that other scripture from Matthew chapter 5, I'll read Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that's a, a wonderful section and a reminder. Uh, again, this is about the, the response that the disciples had to Jesus talking to this young ruler. Um, he was very wealthy, and he said, Everything that's in the commandments I've done since I was young. Since I was a boy, I've done all that's required, which is uh, on its face just completely false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Jesus tells him, you know, one thing that you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he walks away sorrowful because he's he's very rich. And so the, the disciples are are astounded. If, if he can't get into the kingdom of heaven, then who can? Mm-hmm. Who can be saved? And then that beautiful line that Jesus gives, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That We don't have it within us to achieve heaven, uh, to achieve God's presence, uh, to be accepted into God's eternal presence. We don't have it within us, but God, he's made the way. With him, it is possible. Amen. Yeah, and I want to take a second to shine a light on something that Jesus is shining a light on. You know, why are the disciples astonished, greatly astonished? Because in the world's way of thinking, a person who has wealth is morally a better person. Right. There's somebody you listen to, and this persists certainly up to our time. And I won't mention any names, but I remember quite a few years ago, there was a CEO of a very large and successful business, and he's a well-known Christian. And he was invited to talk at all of these conferences. It struck me that he was being given authority by other believers only because he was very wealthy. Like his riches gave him a voice of authority in spiritual matters. And I've seen that happen quite a bit. And it also happens in the world. Billionaires are looked at as being better able to speak into spheres that are outside of their area of knowledge. And we've got to be really careful not to assume that someone is closer to God just because they are wealthy or successful. And that's why I think the disciples were really shocked that Jesus would fly in the face of their assumptions about being wealthy and close to God. And as you said, it's just great, beautiful that he says, 
it's impossible for humans, but God can do the impossible. Yeah, earlier in that chapter, uh, closer to the beginning of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus makes that rather shocking statement uh, in, in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on, uh, uh, this whole section in chapter 5 has a lot of opposites uh, from each other. Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, I say to you. And what he's doing is he's reinterpreting for them what the law actually requires. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and most everybody else had said, you shall not murder. Well, I haven't murdered anybody today. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. And uh, so this is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, uh, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees, as far as it went, were excellent keepers of the law. I mean, they made a show of it. Mm -hmm. And so this righteousness that we need surpassing this law-keeping seems to us to be absolutely impossible, and in fact it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why at the end of that chapter, Jesus gives that statement, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sums up the righteousness that's required. Yeah, it's a righteousness that's required, but there's no act required. I guess would be one way to say it. Yeah. It's not wages. The the righteousness that he's talking about is not payment for good conduct or even the result of good conduct, the righteousness that he's calling out. And it reminds me of what he said about John the Baptist, that even John the Baptist was not righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's in Matthew 11. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, isn't that something? That goes all the way back to creation. Up to John the Baptist, there was no one that was greater than he. And Jesus continues, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that makes me just think, well, how is that even possible, right? That seems impossible. And John was the greatest up to that point, And yet, Anyone who is the least in the kingdom is ahead of John the Baptist. So now we're touching on this, this answer to the question, do I have to be perfect in order to enter heaven? Well, the answer is yes, but boy, how do you get that? And how does that work? And is it actually doable? That's what we're talking about. We can't shy away from what the Lord reveals about this, what he demands. He's perfectly just and perfectly holy, and he demands perfect people. Yeah, and you get answers that are all over the map when you ask people that question, Do you have is, is perfection required for heaven? And people tend to respond with, well, certainly not. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people may respond, no, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to trust in Jesus uh, and, and on and on. And it just goes back to uh, this notion of God accepts me as I am, and therefore I can enter into his presence without anything else needing to be done or nothing that I need to have in order to be there. I heard a teacher, and I've mentioned him on the podcast a few times, David Pawson, and he says, truly, that there are actually two transactions that happen when we put our faith in Jesus. One is he takes away our sins. He pays the price for our sins. And the second transaction is he gives us his righteousness. 
we give him our sins, but he gives us his righteousness, his perfection. And uh, one of David Pawson's points, which I think is very well taken, is a lot of people are very happy to have their sins taken away, but they're not so keen to change and be conformed to the righteousness of Jesus when that is given to them, to actually be different, but not from their own labor, but from this gift that is given. I can't remember one of the early, early church fathers, perhaps in the second century, called that the sweet exchange. And it may have been Irenaeus, but I, I don't remember exactly. But this, that Jesus taking our sin, the sin of the whole world for all time on on himself, which is just one part of that mm-hmm. equation yep. uh, that he then gives to those who have faith and trust in him, this, um, this righteousness, his perfect sinless living. And he clothes us, as the scriptures talk about, in a, in a robe of righteousness. Mm-hmm. So there's that sweet exchange that we have, our sins taken away, his righteousness given to us. And uh, guess what we did for any of that? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't do a thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The work that we do is to believe. That's right. That's our side of it. There tends to be, in a lot of American church culture, this idea that if we just pray the sinner's prayer, we're set. We can just keep living our lives the way we're going to live our lives and, you know, go to church and and be good weekend or Sunday Christians anyway. And I spoke with somebody at a church in the States one time, and as we came out of the conversation, I realized that he, he really had this idea that he had prayed the sinner's prayer when he was young, and now he was probably in his 60s or 70s when I was talking to him, that he was going to go to heaven. He'd had his ticket punched, but he could just keep living his life the way he wanted to live his life. Mm, Right. That there was no expectation from his side that he would, I guess, change or die to himself or receive this righteousness and be more and more conformed to Jesus. He had done half of that beautiful exchange. He had handed over his sins in his mind, to the Lord at one point, but he didn't see that he needed to be growing to maturity and perfection. That's something we need to be very cautious about, and that's one of the primary focuses of why I'm doing this podcast, is to encourage people to keep pressing on and keep growing and go deeper and go from glory to glory, as the scriptures say. I've heard this described as the relationship that we have with God. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. This is a beautiful relationship. <laughs> and that is kind of what Paul was, well, not kind of it. It's what Paul gets at in uh, in the book of Romans, uh, right around chapter six. You know, should we continue to sin so that God's grace will just increase? And then he says, by no means. Mm-hmm. It's not that we love to sin and God loves to forgive. It's that uh, God does love us enough to forgive us in Christ. And then comes that wonderful uh, announcement that Paul makes uh, later in Romans in 12. Uh, we could spend a whole other podcast talking about the, the book of Romans, but mm-hmm. he says, now in view of, of God's mercies, now this is how you're to live. Now that you're in Christ, in view of what God's done for us in Christ, that he has uh, justified the ungodly and on and on, then there there are ways that we're supposed to live, but not first and foremost. You know, I grew up in, you know, just a kind of, I guess, a mainstream Methodist church, and I remember the pastors being kind of like good old boys telling good old stories. I don't really remember hearing 
the gospel and the necessity of dying to myself. There was a lot of this American uh, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of idea. Oh, 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 this brings to mind, I'm sorry, I'm going to change subject, but you said there was a little game in the Bible or not. And actually what I was just saying leads into that. Would you like to play that game with our listeners? Sure. Uh, yeah, I think it helps uh, for us to understand these things because uh, things get in our thinking because of our teaching. And I have no idea how any of this might translate to people in other parts of the world outside of America. But one of the games that I've played in some of the Bible studies and even in a sermon is a game called In the Bible or Not. And these are statements that have been made that we, uh, well, we'll just play this game. And uh, Mike, I'll ask the first question. The phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Is that in the Bible or not? <laughs> well, I, I'm afraid I know the answer to this question. Uh, okay, you're cheating. <laughs> but a lot of people would quote that in churches, right? So yes. tell us, is that in the Bible or not? Yeah, God helps those who help themselves is not actually in the Bible. Uh, it is was made popular by Benjamin Franklin, one of the early founding <laughs> fathers of the United States, uh, whether he originated it or just simply made it popular. But uh, it certainly has woven its way into our thinking and, mm-hmm. and in our speech. God helps those who help themselves. And something that's kind of parallel to that is uh, do your best and God will do the rest. I don't know if people have heard that. That is also nowhere to be found in the Bible. Uh, do your oh, best and God really? will do the rest. Yeah, believe it or not, Mike. I, I, thought, I thought that was Hezekiah. That's Hezekiah three sixteen, right? Uh, okay. Well, I'll look. Let me look that one up. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell our listeners. Uh, there's a joke verse that can be made to say anything you want it to. There's no book of Hezekiah. So if somebody says, "Is it okay for a believer to go to the movies on you know Sunday afternoon or whatever?" You say, "Well, yeah." Hezekiah three sixteen clearly says that Christians should not watch films on the Sabbath. So it's just kind of a joke. So Hezekiah 3.16 is my catch-all for um, actually things that aren't in the Bible. There's this idea that uh, if we that we're good, we can do things on our own, and then we get to a point where we need some help, and then God will step in at that point. And that's just not at all what is revealed. You got another one? I got another one, yeah. Uh, this phrase is... It is by grace we are saved, after all we can do. Hmm. It is by grace we are saved, after all we can do. Yeah, tell us where that comes from. It throws some people off because the first part of that phrase actually comes from uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus uh, in chapter 2 of Ephesians. It, it is by grace we are saved through faith. But this phrase is, it's by grace we are saved after all we can do, and that phrase actually comes from the Book of Mormon. Wow. Uh, so it is not in the Christian Bible. Yeah, and it's got that idea that if we just work up to a certain point, then God will pick up from there. Here's one. I, I think this will be a little bit of a challenge to you if this is in the Bible or not. So um, is this phrase in the Bible or not? God is my co-pilot. <laughs> Well, seeing how I'm pretty sure they didn't have modes of flight transportation uh, in the Bible, I'm not sure what co-pilot would have meant in the original Greek. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And they didn't have bumper stickers back then either. And so uh, that would be a dead giveaway. Uh, to me, I used to think that was good thinking. I used to believe that that really was a like a real spiritual way to think about living life as a Christian. God is my co-pilot. And honestly, now I'll, I think it's wicked because it gives the idea that we're in the driver's seat of our lives. And when we need a little help or when we need a little advice, then God is there and we can ask him. But we're still in charge of the direction of our lives and the speed of our lives and just everything about our lives. We're still in charge. And occasionally we'll ask for some help. And, um, you know, that's that's dangerous thinking, like really dangerous thinking. That's, yeah, and that's a prevailing thought in a lot of Christianity and the teaching today is that God is there to help me and make me happy. <laughs> yeah. And as long as I'm happy, uh, then God just kind of sits back and he takes the right seat of the plane and lets me fly it. Yeah, that brings to mind a quote from the Archbishop of Canterbury. His name was William Temple back during World War II. And a portion of this quote is he assessed culture in the 1940s as a sentimental and hedonistic generation. Sentimentalism is really being driven by emotion and feelings. And hedonistic means self-centered and self-concerned. And what you just said is evidence that there's a lot of teaching in the modern church that is both sentimental and hedonistic. If we feel good, driven by our emotions, um, then God will help us to feel good and feel good about ourselves. And even songs, oh, how God loves me, and things like that, it's just so focused on self And that is flying in the opposite direction of what Jesus reveals, which is if we want to follow him, we have to deny ourselves and die to ourselves daily, take up our crosses daily and walk with him and follow him, not lead him or even walk next to him, but follow him, you know, let him do the leading. Right. Yeah, just the the whole notion of Psalm 23, as David records that the Lord is my shepherd, he leads me. Mm -hmm. Uh, into these green pastures and beside quiet waters. Uh, yeah. In that case, um, the shepherd is not my co-shepherd. <laughs> he is my shepherd. He's the one who leads. Yeah, and you know, all of these things have this thing in common that they seem to think that we're cooperating with God, but we rely on ourselves. And that's just not the way it is. It really is not the way it is. He knows that we're lost. And in John chapter 3, I mean, everybody can quote John 3, 16, but what about John 3, 14, 15, and 17, and 18? What Jesus is saying there is that we're all poisoned, and we're on the path to death, and there's no way that we can save ourselves from that snake poison that we have in us, that we have to turn our eyes to Jesus. We can't save ourselves without him. He alone can save. Yeah, and and I think it goes back uh, to what we were talking about before, because it really sounds right, these kinds of statements. It's by grace we're saved after all we can do. And it really does sound right, because it matches up to what our natural language is, Mm -hmm. which is the law. Mm -hmm. Do this, and you'll receive this. Because in our day-to-day lives, it, it starts from virtually from birth for us. If we put forth a certain amount of effort, we're typically rewarded for that, whether it's in school, 
certainly on the job, you work hard, you get a paycheck, you may actually get a promotion. And so it's up to you to perform to get something. And so we, we translate that, isn't that how God works? You know, if I'm good enough, won't God accept me? Mm-hmm. Don't we earn our way into heaven? Won't God look at my heart and consider me fit? Yeah, I make some mistakes. I tell some white lies. But, you know, God sees my heart, which that's actually the problem. That's not the solution. (laughs) God does see our heart, and that's why he has done something to save us and redeem us from ourselves, from our sin, to save us from from the the wrath that he uh, has poured out as judgment on sin, on our sin. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and like you said earlier, it's freeing this knowledge of the work that he has done on our behalf, that we don't have to labor for it or try to earn this perfection that it's given. And it brings to mind my understanding of Islam is that there are certain things that Muslims must do, the five pillars of faith. But even if you do all that perfectly, you still really don't know if Allah will accept you or uh, allow you into paradise. You just really don't yeah. know his will, even if you do everything right. And that contrasts uh, tremendously with what Jesus has revealed. He said, this is the way it is. And you can know if you abide in me and rest in me, and if you believe in me, then you can be sure. You can know because that is what God is revealing. It's not hidden. These are mysteries that are now revealed. Yeah, virtually every other religion outside of Christianity is a works-based religion in some uh, shape or fashion. It's up to you to do something to achieve nirvana, to empty yourself. It's up to you to climb the steps uh, Mm -hmm. and or to fulfill the five pillars, or just you just pick your religion, and it's all uh, essentially it's works-based. And Christianity is completely opposite. well, let, let me say that a, another way. Christianity is works-based, but it's not our works that um, achieve heaven for us. It's the work of Christ, yeah. because we we can't do anything that's required. Even our good intentions are tinged with sin, Right. Uh, but Christ in his perfect life and his sinless life, it, it, Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. It brings to mind also what Paul said. He gave instructions to the church, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then immediately, in the same breath, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his purpose. So like we set our hearts towards working out what he's doing, but it's actually even his strength, his life that's in us that's doing that, if we'll just surrender ourselves to that flow of life that he gives his people to live by the Spirit, then it's not our own labor even. We just need to commit ourselves to that path, and he'll do that work in us. Yeah, that's right. And this may be a good time and uh, to insert this. Whenever we're reading, especially in the New Testament, uh, this is really critical, and we see this all over the place in the books of Paul, but also in Peter uh, and in James and John, that they begin with, in these letters to these churches, they begin with a proclamation of the gospel, of the good news of, of who they are in Christ. 
Uh, and Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans, for crying out loud, telling them uh, their identity and who they are. Also in Ephesians, he spends a considerable amount of time. But And then after that, after this presentation of the good news of, of what Christ has done, who they are in Christ, then they'll turn to kind of instructions for Christian living. Um, but that's where we tend to start, unfortunately, mm-hmm. when we're looking for how should I live. Uh, we look for, you know, what what's, again... What's the formula? What are the steps? Uh, give me some instructions and just tell me how to live rather than starting with why should we live that way mm-hmm. uh, because of what Christ has done for us. And, and so maybe that's helpful for somebody as you're reading, especially the letters of Paul. Just notice how he begins with this good news, first and foremost. Uh, the letter to the Galatians is maybe one of the uh, only exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. If I could use this analogy uh, of this fancy restaurant and the dress code, Mm -hmm. uh, I'll do that quickly, but that may be helpful to somebody. Please. Okay. And one of the things that we see repeatedly in the Scripture is that what's required of us, what God requires of us in the law, He gives us in the gospel. He doesn't just say, now do this. He actually gives us a way for us to achieve it because Christ has achieved it for us. So what God requires, he gives. Mm-hmm. And it it makes me think, and I shared this in a sermon not too long ago. Um, when I was younger, a group of friends of mine and I had agreed, uh, we were celebrating an event, and we had agreed to meet at a, a fairly fancy restaurant, some, a place that I was not normally used to going. And I knew that they probably had some kind of dress code. You had to uh, men were certainly going to be required to wear a suit coat or a sport coat or something like that. And so I threw one of those in my car and went to the restaurant and and met the maitre d' at the door. And sure enough, they had a dress code. They required a coat. So I had my coat. One thing that I didn't think about is they also required men to wear a tie. And I didn't have a tie. <laughs> and so I stood there without a tie. I had a coat didn't have a tie, and he was not going to let me in the restaurant. I was not dressed appropriately. I didn't have what was required by that restaurant to enter uh, in to eat. And after talking with him and trying to use a sense of humor and some other things, he was not going to let me pass. Uh, It was just not going to be acceptable for me to be in that restaurant without a tie on. And just as I was getting ready to turn away, he reached down underneath the stand and he pulled out a tie. And he gave it to me. And so I very quickly put on this tie and then he stood aside and let me in. And and now I had what was required. And that analogy for me, and of course, every analogy will break down at some point, but that works for me just in terms of thinking, I didn't have what was required, but I was given what was required. I didn't earn it. Uh, It was just by this guy's, um, we would call it his grace. He just... Mm -hmm. uh, took pity on me and gave me this tie, and so I was allowed to go in. Well, one thing that comes to mind, too, is he let you squirm for a little bit. He let you feel the weight of the fact that you didn't have what was needed, and then he allowed, then he provided for you what you needed. And it's a little bit like that with the Lord. He lets us know the weight of our sin. He lets us feel the burden and come to a point where we realize we just can't 
do it ourselves. Yeah. And then when he provides what is needed, that's where our love for him can blossom. I know for me personally, there was a moment, and I can tell you right where I was, I was in my car driving across a bridge in Austin, Texas, and I was confessing a sin, and I received mercy on that bridge. And when I received that mercy, I knew that I deserved punishment and judgment. Hmm. But when I received God's mercy, oh, I just, my love for him just grew. It exploded. My gratitude and everything. And so he'll let us feel that. And actually, I'm kind of hoping that some people right now are feeling a little bit of that as a result of listening to this conversation, that we, we just can't do it. There is no way for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven without him providing what is necessary. And and those kind of experiences, we had talked about emotionalism before, those kind of experiences produce uh, a natural emotion within us, uh, whether mm-hmm. it is just overwhelming gratitude, it may bring us to tears. Um, when we come to the realization of just this magnitude of what God has done for us, and also what he has withheld by his mercy from us, what we mm-hmm. deserve, but because of Christ, and because it's been poured out onto Christ, it hasn't been poured out onto us. It's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, we don't want to say that uh, that Christianity is emotionless, uh, but it's not what we chase. <laughs> it's certainly right. not something that we seek after, but uh, yeah, it can... It can be overwhelming as we just the the love within us uh, wells up, Amen. and then and we find ourselves wanting to do things now that represent God, that represent Christ. I guess I'll tell this story. I imagine my daughter's going to listen to this at some point, so I won't reveal too much. But a couple of weeks ago, our daughter came in to confess a sin. She had done something wrong, something that she knew she should not do, something we had told her not to do. And she had done it in secret, and we didn't know that she had done it, but it was a burden on her. And she came in and confessed, and she was shaking and uh, expecting anger Mm. and punishment. She told us later that she's really expecting to get punished for this. And she confessed the sin and Olga said something just really wonderful. She said, in this family, we do not punish honesty. That's beautiful. And so this, conf- yeah, the confession of sin was the thing that opened the way for our forgiveness and grace. And then our daughter learned a wonderful lesson that even though we fail and miss the mark, and uh, that's kind of one definition of the opposite of perfection. Perfection is being complete, not lacking anything, and sin is missing that mark, doing something that's contrary to perfection. But God doesn't punish our honesty when we really come to him humbly and open ourselves up to him. Yeah. There's grace for the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy in the story, and it shows a couple of things, Mike. One, confession was necessary mm-hmm. for her sake, but also for your relationship, but it was clear just by her the way she approached and how she was shaking and everything inside and filled with anxiety. The law 
had already done its work. It had already pointed out to her her sinfulness. Yeah. And so then, yeah, the the response that you and Olga gave just in forgiveness is exactly what our heavenly Father does. When the when the law does its work and and we're brought to our knees and into our need for a savior, uh, then forgiveness is abundant. One of the results of that was also that Valerie was set free from that conviction of sin that she had and that she was laboring under. She was really released with joy uh, when she heard the words that we said to her. And that is just a, a small snippet of what the Christian life is like. We are freed from not just sin, but also the power and the dominion of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Christ said on the cross, this is recorded in John chapter 19, uh, he says that it, it is finished. Uh, that phrase is not a suggestion or it's not a hope. This is God himself saying what is necessary, what was necessary has been accomplished. Uh, so whenever we read in the scriptures this idea about being perfect or perfection, whatever is required of us, we just need to remember that phrase that Jesus gives, it is finished, that Christ finished it, he completed it, he accomplished it in his perfect and sinless life and in his all-sufficient death on the cross for us, and that frees us now for joyful obedience in him and joyful living. We're not under his thumb. Uh, We are securely in his presence, and the Holy Spirit is just that deposit, that guarantee of Mm -hmm. what's to come. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah, and I'll go back to to something that I said uh, before, Mike, too. Scripture teaches and promises us that God justifies the ungodly, if we ever wonder who the ungodly are, it's all of us. Yeah. And he credits Christ's perfect righteousness to us. And so we're now clothed in that robe of righteousness. And just in the parable, as in the parable that Jesus gives about the wedding feast, uh, people are led in. They're invited from all places and all walks. And they come to this wedding feast because they've been invited. But there's somebody there who doesn't have the correct clothing. Right. And so the the master asks this, how'd you get in here? You're not wearing what you're supposed to wear. And and he's tossed out. Uh, But we've been clothed in the righteous robe of Christ. And so we're accepted into his presence. We're accepted uh, as guests uh, and as brothers and sisters at that dining table uh, that we will all sit at, Mm -hmm. at that feast of uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Uh, clothed in his righteousness. And so when we ask that question, is perfection required to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Uh, The answer is yes. But in Christ and in him alone, not in anything else that we do or cooperate or add to, uh, we've been given all that we need. Yeah. Amen. And just, uh, Mike, I can finish up with this. It reminds me of of a couple of verses of pretty popular American hymn. I'm not even sure of the author or when this was written. Uh, I know this from my childhood, uh, but well before that. Uh, It's called Rock of Ages, and uh, the second and third verses really speak to this about what do we bring uh, to this. Uh, The second verse says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal 
no respite or rest, no, and could my tears just forever flow, all of those could never sin erase, that thou must save and save by grace. And then in verse 3, the author of this hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen. That is, that is really good. So, Glenn, I want to thank you for joining in today and uh, pressing through with this. It's really nice to talk with you about this, and I appreciate uh, your insight, and I know it's going to be helpful to the people that are listening. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's been great. It's been great doing this. I hope it is a blessing to other people as they listen. I know our weekly conversations are always uh, encouraging uh, to me and uh, your podcast. I was one of the early adopters uh, (laughs) when you first started doing that podcast, so I've been listening from the beginning, uh, and those are always encouraging to me as well. Yeah, good. Amen. Let me just close things up here real quick. One of the main purposes of the podcast is based on what we know as the Great Commission, and Jesus said, teach people to obey all that I've commanded. And what I want of this podcast, the conversations that I have, we have, is to help people put into practice the truths of God. And so there's a thought, what is the application of what you and I have been discussing today? And I just have a few bullet points here. The work of God is to believe in the one that he has sent. The gift of God is eternal life. Um, The wages of sin is death. So what he gives us is not something that we work for or even earn. We could never do that. We don't need to work for perfection. We just need to believe and accept his gifts. And as we believe and abide in him, then we'll begin to put on his righteousness. Like you said, we'll be clothed in his righteousness and we'll actually be changed. Like I mentioned earlier, Paul says, work it out, but it's actually him who is doing it. So there's a doing that's involved, a flow of life and fruit, good fruit results as we believe in him and abide in him. And one thing that kept coming to mind is, for our part, we just need to be willing to change, to let go of things, to, the, you know, the scriptural word is repent, to have a new mind, a new perspective. We just need to be willing to be different and then let him do what he's going to do. Let him be the author and the perfecter of our faith. So again, Glenn, thanks very much. And to the listeners, until next time, I pray that the Lord will continue to reveal to you his will and his ways because his ways are always good and they lead to peace for the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.